Hello, welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth. This is season seven, episode one. Stay ready with Mel Brown. I'm so excited to introduce you to this episode. It's hard to know really where to begin. If I were to read Mel's entire bio, it would take up half the length of this episode. So I'm gonna try to keep it really short and sweet. If we had to choose a single musician who represents the history of jazz in Portland, Oregon, it would be the drummer, Mel Brown. He's one of the most active, influential, respected artists in our scene, and he has been since the 70s. He found his way in Portland's historic jazz district that flourished along Williams Avenue in Northeast Portland in the 40s and 50s. And he's helped train and nurture hundreds and hundreds of other musicians. He is a master of what's known as the hard bop style, as well as straight ahead bebop and soul jazz styles. His accomplishments transcend local fame. He was part of the Motown Records stable of sidemen in the 60s and 70s, and he was a member of the touring band of the former Supremes lead singer Diana Ross in the 70s and early 80s. There's a stage named for him at Jimmy Max, a Portland nightclub, and that really speaks to his definitive status here in his hometown. He was born and raised in Northeast Portland's African-American neighborhood. He attended Elliott grade school, and began learning his craft there from local musicians. He is a true hometown hero, and I can't wait for you to hear more about his life and his story and some of his philosophical approaches to art making and finding a way in a career in the arts. Please enjoy, here's Mel Brown. Hello, my name is Mel Brown. And I'm one of the musicians that was born and raised here in Portland. And I've had a chance to travel around and do many things around the world. And it's a pleasure to get back home again. I'm known as the gentleman of jazz around here in Portland. And I think that kind of came about because of the way I try to carry myself. One of my idols is Sidney Poitier. And I wanted to have the class I want to have that sound of Sydney. I want to have that strength of Sydney without being loud. I want to be able to walk into a room and command immediate attention and never open my mouth until I smile. And that's when I get a chance to warm you up with the smile. Every time I sit down behind the drums and play, I look like this. It's always suit and tie. Traveling the way I have, and I used to live in New York. I like dressing. I don't wear jeans and tennis shoes to a gig. You know, I can just walk in and most of the time, it's not a lot of time before we start playing. But before I even get to the drums, someone's gonna say, that's the leader. Again, Sidney Poitier, you can get a lot of attention without being loud. You know, I'd like to say that <laughs> The northeast side of town over here is kind of like my neighborhood, because I grew up on Schuyler Street. And Schuyler is right around the corner there from Broadway. And back then, it was called Union. Now it's called MLK. And there's Broadway <laughs> Motors that's right on the corner. Our house was right behind that. 
because the Broadway Motors used to be a Harley Davidson motorcycle shop when I was a kid. You know, being black, they really didn't want you to go across Union Avenue. You could, but they didn't really want you to. And the other way, Broadway, going down to where uh, the Motor Center is. That was all a neighborhood before they tore everything down and moved everybody out of the way. But that was the neighborhood of where I used to deliver my newspapers. I was a newspaper boy for the Oregon Journal, and I used to deliver those papers all up and down that area over there. And so a lot of the people, especially a lot of the black people, before they sort of got displaced, that was my neighborhood where I just, I was that little kid early in the morning or else in the evening <laughs> throwing the Oregon Journal. You know, and I just saw so much around me musically because in the black community, we had a lot of clubs. What I did see at that time, there were a lot of musicians that played around here locally, but there were a lot of people from out of town who came through Portland that played. Because back then, you know, back in the very early 60s or late 50s, people like Duke Ellington or Count Basie or Louis Armstrong, they would come to town and play in downtown Portland, but they really weren't allowed to stay down here, so they had to go back over on the black side of town over by Broadway and Union to either have something to eat like an after hour place or else they would rent out a room in some of the houses that they had around here for the musicians. Because these guys, they traveled by bus. They didn't have their <laughs> Learjets and that whole bit. But I'd see these guys, because I'm out throwing newspapers, sometimes early in the morning, they would have their early morning breakfast shows, like on Weidler and Williams Avenue, called Little Sandy's. And the door would open up and I'd ride by on my bike, I'd see the guys inside playing the organ and the drums and the guitar and people out dancing. And the whole, this is six o'clock in the morning, because that's the way they used to do shows around town here. It started at six. The guys that we did back then, guys would play floor shows from 9.30, to 2.30 in the morning, take a little bit of a break and come back and start playing at six and play until the early afternoon. So you always had a lot of activity going on. So me riding a bicycle and looking and sometimes catching people come out, <laughs> it cost a nickel for the newspaper. I'm selling newspapers as well as delivering them on people's porches. So that whole neighborhood was just jumping. So it was great. Yes, because that hospital is where I was. <laughs> that hospital in our neighborhood was called Emanuel Hospital, and I was born there in 1944. So it was like that, that whole thing of the hospital. It was there, but it wasn't, it wasn't that large. It wasn't until the latter part of the 50s or early 60s that it started to expand. So a lot of the people in the Albina neighborhood moving out they started buying up the property and stuff around, and then the hospital expanded. But up to that point, it was all black businesses up down in Williams and Vancouver Avenue. It was just a beautiful area. You know, it was just door after door. There was a business of some kind. I was <laughs> born and raised here, so I went to school. At, it's now the Lloyd Center. It was called Holiday Grade School. And the Holiday Grade School was there until I got into the fifth grade, and then most of us, the black students, they moved us to the brand new school called Elliott that was over on Flint Street that was down the street from <laughs> the Oaks Club. 
that whole area down in there. We used to walk through like a little woodsy area behind the school. We call it the dumps. And you walk down through this bushy area and you ended up down there getting close to Interstate Avenue. That was a brand new school, so it was great for us to go there. But after that, going to school at Elliott, I decided to go to Washington High School. And all my buddies went to Benson High School. Benson had, it was an all boys school. And that's the reason I didn't want to go to Benson. <laughs> I wanted to be around some ladies. <laughs> so I decided to go to Washington High School. So it was quite a, <laughs> quite a jog <laughs> to get to Washington High School. While I was there at Washington, I was lucky enough to get a, a music scholarship that I could take anywhere I wanted to. And I decided to go to school at Portland State. And back then it was Portland State College. You know, and we only had three terms. And tuition, <laughs> thank God for the scholarship, tuition was $100 a term. I found my connection with the drums from grade school, from Elliott Grade School. There were some guys from the neighborhood that did an assembly. And I saw the drummer play, but with the amber and the red and the blue lights on and the whole bit. I was thinking, wow, I think I'd like to do something like that. Because, see, I come from a, a six-member family. I had four older sisters. And one of my sisters played the piano and played for the church, for Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church. And she was taking piano lessons from the piano player from the church. And my grandfather just, he bought a piano. So I started kind of dinking around like I thought I want to do it. But I'm next to the baby, and my sister played better than me. So I got jealous, because I'm a Leo, and I didn't want to come in second. So I just started thinking, I'll leave the piano alone, but I think I might try the drums. Some of those guys that were from my neighborhood that were doing that assembly, I said, hey, I can hang with these guys over here. But I wasn't involved in the music program yet. And then uh, at the end of my seventh grade year, I decided to see what was happening in the school system there to try to get into playing the drums. You know, and I was so smitten with it that having those newspapers, because the Oregon Journal, sometimes the papers on Saturdays were little. They were, I couldn't afford any drumsticks or drums, so I used those newspapers for drumsticks to try to beat on the wood in the paper branch <laughs> until I could make some money so I could go out and buy a practice pad and buy some sticks. You know, bear in mind when I was throwing the newspaper, it was a dollar twenty-five cents per month for me to deliver the newspapers seven days a week. You had to save for a while just to get <laughs> get some drumsticks and some other stuff, but I was into it. You know, and I'm a worker. And after I realized I couldn't really make a lot of money playing or just doing the the newspaper type of thing. Then I was old enough to try to get a chance to get on the bean picking and the strawberry bus, Mr. Graham's bus from Alderman Farms, so I could make a little more money picking strawberries and beans. That allowed me to make enough money to get a practice pad and to rent a drum set and to start my little rock and roll band. And from that point on, I said, no, no, I won't be out here <laughs> picking strawberries and beans. I'm going to play in a band and make some money that way. And that's how things just started kind of coming together with that uh, the thing of like, I'm going to be a drummer. And since I said I was going to be a drummer, 
I'm gonna put in some time and really, really work hard and be good. Plus I had older guys around the neighborhood. I'd, I'd hear them practicing and I'd run home and try to emulate these guys. Because those musicians that live around here in Portland, some of those guys used to be with those big bands, but they decided to stay here in Portland and raise a family. And, you know, and with these guys that were raising the family, I grew up with their kids. And so I always had uh, somebody I can kind of deal with. So I always had some help from around. The older guys would help me. I decided to um, leave Portland actually in the 64. Because I started school in 1962 at Portland State. I happened to um, get a chance to get a call to go out to do a gig with a fellow by the name of Earl Grant, who's an organist. He was a kind of a guy that sounded like Nat King Cole when he sang, but he played organ and piano at the same time. And he was, he was an entertainer to have both of those things going on. And uh, we just started traveling and uh, going to Vegas, Tahoe, that whole bit. And uh, that's when things just started kind of getting, opening up the doors for me to do things out there. Well, Earl was with Capitol Records. I never really did anything for Capitol Records, but uh, Earl Grant was the guy that was doing that. This whole thing started with Motown, rather amazing. <laughs> Traveling with Earl Grant, we traveled around a lot. And I remember at one trip, I had to drive from San Francisco to Montreal. And we did the gig there for a couple of weeks. And then I drove back. But it was me and the guitar player, Hank Sworn, and we're driving back, but we had a friend that used to play here in Portland, an organist, that was from Detroit. And we stopped to see him and he said, hey man, you guys seen Motown? I said, where? There's houses around here. He said, that's, that's the house across the street. I said, no, that's somebody's personal house. There's people standing out in the front of their house. He said, no, 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 that's the front door of Motown Records, which was 2648 West Grand Boulevard. He said, you see those guys that are standing out there in the front? And I said, yeah, we just, they're like close to my age. That's just the house. He said, no, 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 no. And I didn't realize at the time, I was looking at Smokey Robinson. I was looking at Levi from the Four Tops. I was like, probably looking at uh, one of the Temptations. They were standing out in the front, probably right after coming from the recording studio. And so when I got back, I told Earl Grant what uh, Hank Swan and I experienced. He said, oh yeah, yeah, I heard about them back there in Detroit. And uh, then we traveled up to Vancouver, Canada. And while I was up there, one of the guys that followed us around, he was a piano player that I got to be fairly good friends with. And his name was Billy Preston. And uh, it just so happened that Martha and Mandela's were in Vancouver. And uh, I had joined a band up there because they said they got signed at Motown. And I was ready to, maybe I'll meet the Supremes one day, Hullabaloo and Shindig. Nothing happened for a year. So I was up there in Canada. But the club that I played in, we played from midnight to five in the morning. So when all clubs closed, everybody came down to where we were. And we were underneath a bowling alley. I was downstairs like this. But our guitar player owned the club. So we always had a job. But it just so happened that a comedian that was on the show with Martha and the Vandellas knew me from Earl Grant from Vegas and Tahoe, that kind of stuff. And he called up Martha at four o'clock in the morning and said, you better come see this drummer, I know him. So she got out of bed and came down and said, oh yeah, meet me in LA at the Whiskey A Go-Go in two weeks and let's go to work. And that's how I got to the Motown thing. 
But the comedian who actually helped me get that gig, you knew him as Sanford and Son. I knew him as Red Fox because he called up Martha. And then later on, as that thing started happening, I left Martha and got with the Temptations. I found out that our guitar player that we had in the band in Canada, who let me stay in his parents' basement apartment for half a year, became a comedian. So I'm on TV one night on Johnny Carson. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here they are from LA, Cheech and Chong. I'm saying, Tommy, are you kidding me? Our guitar player is a comedian now? Sure enough, Tommy Chong was our guitar player. This is a picture of me at the Apollo Theater in New York. At that time, I was with The Temptations, but I used to have a comedy thing in the show where I played Geraldine. So I had a wig on my head. So that's what you see on the stage during one of our shows. And if you flip the page, you'll see me and Tommy Chong. That was our group, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's at Stanley Park in Vancouver, Canada. Okay, now the concert that we did with Diana Ross was for uh, UNLV. It was a brand new auditorium that they were opening up. I think Frank Sinatra got sick and couldn't make it, so Diane filled in what was happening at that place. Because let me preface this thing of how he even got to Vegas with Diana Ross. That's <laughs> going back a ways. In 1968, because I joined Martha in 67, in 1968, I was still with Martha and Martha Reeves from Martha and the Vandellas. And they did a TV special with The Temptations and The Supremes called TCB, Taking Care of Business. And because we were always around each other in Detroit, they said, hey man, call that drummer up there in San Francisco and have him come to LA because he reads music well and he'll be great for the show. And I did the show, and right after the show was over with, Barry Gordy said, I'm going to take him and put him with The Temptations. And that's how I ended up getting with The Temptations. He just moved me over to this other group. And from that point, we just, The Temptations just took off. I mean, we were getting so big and so strong. It was just unbelievable. So I stayed with The Temptations, though, from 68 until... 74. And that happened uh, <laughs> for a period of time when I watched the group change. David Ruffin had left that. Well, they put him out of the group. <laughs> so all the changes and all of the guys in the band with the Temptations. And it's like there's a little bit of backbiting going on. So I think I'm going to quit and leave. But they didn't think I was going to quit. I got in the middle of a tour and I told them I was going to quit and join a group called the Fifth Dimension. And they just said, uh-oh, we better give this guy some more money because otherwise he's gonna leave us out here on the road. So they gave me a little more money and I stayed for a couple of months. I said, that's it, I'm, I'm going, I'm back to Portland, Oregon. I'm gonna open up my own music store. I opened up a place called Mel Brown Drum Shop and that was on Stark and Grand. Nowadays in town, if you're riding around Portland, there's a place called The Next Adventure. That was my store. And I stayed here so I could play jazz and get away from Motown. And I started playing around Portland here, playing the jazz thing for a hot minute. But then uh, I got a phone call from <laughs> the bass singer with The Temptations. His name was Melvin. So they called me Brown and they called him Blue. Hey, cuz, come on back out on the road. Because I found out when I was with The Temptations in Detroit that he was my cousin. So I said, oh man. I said, well, listen, I got the business going on here. It's kind of hard to leave. And he just said, well, 
Oh, think about it. I said, okay, fine, Blue, thanks. Hung up the phone, and 20 minutes later, <laughs> United Airlines called. Mr. Brown, we have a plane ticket for you out here. What? No, 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 no. I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out there and get that plane ticket and go to L.A., and I'm going to ask for a lot more money. That way they're going to turn me down. I got down and told him, see, I'll come out and I'll do this now, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay, fine. I said, oh, God, I got a brand new business I'm trying to start. <laughs> and you're going to make me stay out here because you're giving me a lot of money. So I stayed out there for a hot minute, and then I came back here. And then Mary Wilson from the Supremes called. Hey, Brown, I need you. So okay, Mary, what's happening? <laughs> I joined the Supremes, and then I decided, I got a business to run. So I said, that's it, Mary. Quit. Came back home. Temptations call. <laughs> back on the road again. And I finally just said, enough is enough. I'm going to run the business here. And so that's what I did. I started doing the jazz and running the businesses here. And then Diana Ross called and said, hey, Brown, I got two one-nighters in Arizona. That turned into 12 years. So it's kind of hard to kind of get away from that whole Motown thing, but I always wanted to be here in Portland to play jazz. Now, I'm prefacing that to say that that's why I dress like this. Because if you ever saw any of our shows with Diana Ross, she changes those dynamite outfits three or four times per show. And each time you look and it's like, damn, Diane, how can you change that fast and look that good? Because we're playing the music and she just runs off the stage and we're playing, and it's probably like about two minutes, three minutes later on, she comes back out because we're segueing into another tune. But that's where this really comes from, because of the dressing. That's why they started calling me the gentleman of jazz. Because when I decided to stay here in Portland and play jazz, <laughs> I would be home part of the year and on the road the other part of the year. But what I used to do, I used to <laughs> come to the gig at a place called The Hobbit on 39th and Holgate. I'd take two other suits besides what I was wearing. And when the band took a break, I went back in the office and I changed and put another suit on. So it got to the point that women, <laughs> they weren't accustomed to men being dressed with a suit and tie on. They come down to the club and the club is like this because the guys are chasing the ladies and they didn't want to leave because they wanted to see what is he going to wear in the next set. <laughs> so that it was like a fashion show type of a thing. Hence, the gentleman of jazz. I was a house drummer doing HBO uh, TV shows. March of Dimes, Easter Seals, that whole nine yards. And that's how I became the, the house drummer on those shows. Jerry Lewis and that other kind of thing. You couldn't see because I was behind a scrim. But I actually ended up getting those gigs because of our conductor that we had that was with Diana Ross. And if our conductor was a guy from Vegas. His name was Joe Gershow. And Gershow used to be the conductor with Elvis Presley before he came to us with Diana Ross. And Joe and I got to be pretty tight. And so we started, he knew a lot of the people. So when things opened up, it was like, oh yeah, I got a drummer because he's one of the producers on the end of doing those specials. Hey Brown, come on, you're with me. I started playing all these different things and then people just started calling, you know? And so I started getting those gigs, you know? And so it's like, I was bouncing all over the place. Being an educator, what had happened is that a lot of, I was an adjunct faculty. And so I was hired to teach at Western Oregon 
University. And that's how that thing got started. But initially here in town, as far as educational type of things happening, uh, they started a jazz camp at Mount Hood Community College. I was on that the board of directors at Mount Hood Community College, and they hired me to be one of the drum instructors. And they said, okay, we're gonna start doing something to expand the program. We want to make more money, so we had the Mount Hood Jazz Festival started. And I was right there. I was at the first one, because I was on the board of directors. We spent our time at Mount Hood, the internal things that you have in education and the board of directors started getting crazy. So we moved from Mount Hood Community College to Lewis and Clark. And we spent a couple of years at Lewis and Clark and left and then went down to Newport, Oregon. And we did a couple of years there, jazz camp and the piano player in one of my groups. He got the job teaching at Western Oregon. They said, boy, this guy Mel Brown, she sure brings people around. Let's hire him to be here at Western Oregon and see if we can't upgrade what's going on with our programs down here. And that lasted 20 years. So during the summer months, the first week of August was the Mel Brown Jazz Camp. And the age range went from, 30, from 13 to 75, 80. Week-long camp of jazz all day long. And then at the end of the week, you do a final concert, but your family gets a chance to come see you. You're just like you're going to, I don't know, like a summer camp is really what it was. You know, everybody stayed in the dorms and did the whole nine yards. We taught during the day, we hung out at night. Mm -hmm. So we got a chance to meet a lot of people and I got a chance to see the changes in people's lives, how much we affected them. And that's where the educational thing, because we had one little girl who's got a couple of Grammys right now. She was a cellist when she came to us and we turned her into a bass player. Her name is Esperanza Spalding. She was one of the members at the camp. From my time, going back, one of the favorite things was uh, 1970. I was in London with The Temptations. <laughs> we finished the show and the bass player came to me and said, Mel Brown, the guys are looking for you down in the, in the dressing room. I said, what guys? He said, go downstairs, go to The Temptations dressing room. I said, oh man, okay. But I had a date with the head dancer because we had that Follies Bergere type of show with the women on the swings and all the other stuff. And uh, I walked in the door, I said, who's looking for me? And they said, there he is, what's going on? So I backed up against the door to let whoever was in there run out the door. But instead of running out the door, they were grabbing, hanging on to me. And I'm saying, what, who the hell, is, what are you doing? And I had to look down and it was Ringo, it was Paul, it was George. And I'm saying, the Beatles? I thought, that they were tall. That's why they wore those shoes with the platform to make them look tall. And the pictures you always see are at an angle like this. And it's like, I can't believe this until I turned around and right in the middle of the room over by the Temptations was my buddy, Billy Preston. And Preston said, hey, Brown, we're gonna make a record. George is gonna do a thing. And we want you to play drums on it. I said, yeah, right. I said, listen, I gotta go meet this lady over here. I gotta get out of here. He said, well, where are you staying? I said, I'm staying at this place called the White House. And he wrote down my number. I said, I'll wait, you guys give me a call and let's talk about it. Sure enough, the next morning, rang, rang. I say, sir, the limo was here. Got up and got dressed, got in the limo, and they took me over to Apple Records. And Ringo said, hey, man, you can use my drums over here. I said, what? 
He said, yeah, Hal Blaine, the recording guy from L.A., he gave me a set of Ludwig drums, and that's when the, you see the drummers with all those tom-toms. You can barely see the drums. I mean, you barely see the player because of so many drums. So I sat down, and we started playing, and we started recording. My sweet Lord. In the middle of that, there's a drum break, and I'm little. So I sit up to hear the cymbal, but there's so many drums, you have to really stand up and really reach out to hit the cymbal. And my foot fell off the bass drum. <laughs> I said, oh boy, I sure screwed up this track. This is nuts. Well, we ended up laying down some more tracks and the whole bit. Then we had to go back to the talk of the town to do our show that night with the Temptations. And I thought, well, I don't know what's going to happen with this. And they were going to keep that track. But the union law over there said, hey, <laughs> this guy is from the United States. He's not from England, so we're going to take and pull that track he was on. We're going to pull it off, and we're going to put it on Billy Preston. I get back here in L.A. with the Temptations after the gig, and I'm driving back to the hotel. I said, boy, why does this music sound so familiar? I said, oh, because we laid down the rhythm track. Now they got the choir on, they got the rest of the orchestra playing a whole bit. I said, I wonder if that could be me. No, it can't be me. Sure enough, in the middle of the tune, where I did the screw up, they had kept it on that first recording. So that's why I knew it was me. They change it over and use a different track to finally get all the pressing and all the other stuff done. But I look at that and it's like, and that's a memorable moment. You know, here I am playing with the Beatles, not looking for the Beatles, not to be bothered with them. And they had come down to see me at the talk of the town and were raving, and that's why they asked me to play drums on their record. So all things must pass with George Harrison. That's me. Memorable moment. And then when we did the thing for the Queen, or not actually for the Queen, no, <laughs> Princess Anne. When I was with Diana Ross, we did a thing at Royal Albert Hall. I was playing with Diana Ross at the time, but it was a concert that the royal family had put together for us. So Princess Anne, and <laughs> they were there, and the guys in the band got a chance to go up <laughs> and meet everybody. And I was the one who showed up late. <laughs> because see, during that period of time, you know, we wore tails. And I sweat a lot. I was soaking wet. So I went back to the dressing room and changed and put on <laughs> my suit. And they were saying, damn it, Mel Brown, get your ass upstairs. Because the royal family doesn't wait for nobody. I said, unless they want to see me in my underwear, they're going to have to hang on. They said, are you sick? <laughs> so when I finally did go up there to see the royal family and the whole bit, it was me and Diane, Diane Ross. <laughs> so we met and did, their, did a bit with them, and then we left. You know, I was around a lot of that the royalty stuff that was over there. And it was uh, quite interesting. But at the time, I was, I, didn't, I was working so much. You don't think about doing anything and saying, wow, did you see me? You know, I was just doing the gig and moving on to the next gig. Because, you know, when you were as busy as I was, all you could think about doing was playing, getting some sleep, getting up, get on a plane, and get to the next gig. That's exactly what <laughs> was know, happening. Then, you know, you just kind of get caught up in the middle of all of this, you know, and you get going, and you don't really stop and think about long game, long game. The long game for me at one point, which if you think about it, was owning the music stores. Because he would uh, <laughs> to go back to another story. When I was with The Temptations, I was checking on an endorsement that I had with a drum company that was purchased by some people in Chinook, Kansas, which is like Mayberry RFD, one motel, one hotel, and you're out from Kansas City. 
nothing out there. But they used to make those amplifiers with the tuck and roll look. It was silver and blue and red and the whole bit. And I checked on uh, my endorsement. The guy said, yeah, he said, boy, you seem to be pretty sharp. Um, why don't you become one of our reps for the company? He said, I know you're out traveling with the Temptations, but you're traveling going from town to town to town. And I said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, this kind of goes along with where I'm headed right now, because I was taking some classes in marketing and economics from the University of Cal in Berkeley. So I'm getting all my homework <laughs> like this in the mail, the Motown office, do my homework and put it in the mail and send it back and get it graded and the whole nine yards. I said, well, this will work for me. So I do the show with the temps. <laughs> and when the show was over with, I grab my bag with the clothes in it and go out to the airport and catch a plane and fly to the next town and get up at eight in the morning and put on suit and tie and call on all of the dealers around town. And I'm taking the orders on what we needed of this size bass drum, this size snare drum. Get back to the hotel, sleep for about an hour, get up, do the show with the Temptations. When they finish, grab the bags, run out to the airport, get on a plane, and go to the next town. And so I was just playing the music and then trying to be a business person. And at one point, I just decided, I'm just going to buy the drum company. And it just so happens that by 1974, that's when we started having problems with buying gas, where you had to get it every other day. And it was like, okay, well, our products and stuff is gonna come from, it was Asian products. So it's like, oh no, it's getting crazy. So I'm gonna back up and I'm going to uh, let somebody else deal with this. When I'm playing drums, it's like I'm floating. You know, I look at myself as being an entertainer drummer. When you look at me, I smile all of the time. And as a result of that, I ended up getting <laughs> the nickname of Smiley. <laughs> and that came because of <laughs> Diana Ross's daughters, because the girls, when they were little, Chutney and their sisters, they would come see the show with Vegas at Caesar's Palace. And they were saying, well, Mom, I don't know if I really want to come and see the show, but is Smiley going to be playing tonight? She said, yeah. She said, okay, come down and you can see the show. So that's, that's where that kind of stuck. But you guys see her on, on Blackish. Tracy Ross? Yeah. Because she was a kid about that big around and had these glasses like this on her face. It's like if you draw a picture in a cartoon, that's exactly what she looked like. <laughs> skinny, skinny, and she was tall, and her sister Rhonda was a little bit older, and Chutney was just, her head just barely reached the table. One of my favorite things about being from Portland and then coming back to Portland is that I've seen the changes but I remember when I was a kid growing up, everybody in the neighborhood knew everybody else. And so it was just like you were protected. Because if you went out in the evening and you were playing hide and go seek or something, and you're playing with some kids down the street, you know, your parents are saying, hey, when the street light comes on, you better be up here on this porch and getting ready to go to bed. Otherwise, you're in trouble. But also, if you were down the street playing ball, and the ball would break a window, the neighbors had the option to spank you on the spot and get on the phone and call your parents. And when you got home, they were on the front porch with that belt waiting on you. So they taught you a whole lot of discipline. They taught you how to say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. But you also got that from going to church on Sundays. You see other people. But then you start <laughs> looking at 
the back door of what happens with that discipline and how they teach you certain things. Because you're around the people at church, after church is over with, you see certain people sitting in groups, <laughs> especially some of the ladies. They sit there and they talk about so-and-so who had this nice big wide hat on at church. Did you see that hussy? Did you see when she, wait a minute, you're in church. You're not supposed to be talking behind somebody's back. But it was some of the funniest stories in the world. And I used to try to relate to those things <laughs> from being on the road out there and then coming back to Portland and seeing how things have changed a little bit because it's got the younger people now. So they can't really relate to what I went through, you know, back then because it was so much fun. You know, we used to have a lady, it was a comedian, her name was Moms Mabley, and she used to uh, talk about those very same things. Now, I don't know if you ever heard about Moms Mabley. Oh boy, she was something, because she'd dress up like an old lady and take her teeth out of her mouth, and she'd tell jokes and <laughs> that whole night, yeah. <laughs> but boy, she used to have you in the middle of the floor. But that's what I could relate to. If you ever get a chance, check out some old Moms Mabley. Her name is Jackie Moms Mabley. Funny, 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 funny. One of the things about Portland right now is that we have people that are in this town, whether they're young or old, that are really not from Portland. They came from California, they came from Washington, they came from Texas, they came from Mississippi or Alabama. And uh, their way of being brought up is a little different from what we have here. So it's kind of hard for me to have a connection with what it was like when I was a kid growing up, what I really liked, and what's going on now. Because it's at that point right now, you don't even know that your neighbors across the street. Or as back then, you knew everybody, the kids, when they were born, you know, what they liked, what they disliked. And uh, we don't really have the neighborhoods anymore. You know, so that's what's kind of missing right now. That's why I feel bad about Portland, because it's nobody's fault that it's totally the way it is. It's just that someone brought their culture from another area and they brought her here to Portland and they sat down and that's what's going on. And we have to kind of deal with that a little bit. We have to find out how to get around it without creating problems. And uh, the music thing for me here in Portland, I was lucky enough to be able to start something when I came back because there was nothing going on around here. Because everybody was into the Jimi Hendrix thing and you played outside and you played loud. I like to play with brushes and play soft and smooth. So I got some things going on and the older people were saying, hey, this guy Mel Brown, he might start something. So all of a sudden the older people started getting out of the house and coming to clubs. And once they found out what was going on, because I started a Sunday jam session, other businesses around here decided, oh, this guy is, uh, he's from New York, he might start something here. So they opened up a club over here, opened up a club over here to compete with me. And I always considered myself Michael Corleone, I'd start something here. And when everybody looked over there, I went over here. And when they looked over here, I went over there. And when they looked over there, they stopped thinking, where's he gonna hit next? They didn't know where I was gonna hit. And that's why I used to go out the country a lot. I used to go out with the Supreme, go to Japan, some other place. But at least I planted a seed and it started to grow. And before you know it, we had like 25, 30 jazz clubs here in Portland. And all of a sudden, people from New York and the East Coast are saying, hey, I like what's happening in Portland. So they started moving here. And that's how the Portland scene 
kind of got its action happening again. But it wasn't because of the older guys that were here, because the older guys that were here, the musicians, they had families to raise. So the wives were saying, hey, listen, we got to put food on the table for these kids. So instead of you playing in the clubs, you go get a job at the post office, because at least you can get a pension or retirement. You got something coming in. And so these guys just kind of got off the scene. But then the younger crowd started coming in because they were saying, Fortin's got some music going on out here. And so it's not, we're seeing a second wave of that. But these are people coming from California, people from New York, people from the Midwest, and they're saying, okay, I got my music degree, whatever, I'm gonna go out here to Portland because it's a little cheaper because I can sit and rent or even buy a house and I got a backyard as opposed to say I live in New York and all I got is an elevator. <laughs> if I was gonna give out some information to anybody in the arts field, don't lose your dream. Always hang into it. Because what's gonna happen, you're gonna go through certain periods of time, and you're thinking, is it really worth it? What's happening? Maybe you get married, maybe you wanna buy a house, and you say, I'm an artist. And they look at you like, what? <laughs> you're an artist? Uh, well, I'd like to help you, but blah, 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 blah. And that's what's even happening with me when I decided I was gonna have the drum shop. I went to the bank, the US bank, and they were saying, oh, you're a musician, huh? I said, yeah. I, well, I don't know, because your stuff is a little, it's kind of iffy and blah, blah, blah. I said, wait a minute, but don't you see this piece of paper here? Here's a check that I have with Diana Ross's name on it. So here's a check over here for 25 grand. I want to start a count over here, so we'll work with this and we'll see what's happening. And they say, well, I don't know, I don't know. And here in town in Portland, we used to have a big band. It was called the Woody Height Big Band. I played at uh, Washington Park. And all of a sudden they started announcing, oh yeah, well, we got the drummer from Diana Ross playing the band. All of a sudden it's like, what? And the banker happened to be there up at Washington Park. Next thing I know, things started happening. So they just opened the door. But it's like, oh, well, he has a business type of mind. We'll take a chance. But if I didn't say I was going to have a business and I just wanted to get a loan, I was an artist, they laugh in your face. But that vice president at the bank, <laughs> after he retired, he came to my drum shop and said, oh, yeah, hey, Mel, I picked up my guitar after I stopped working at the bank. And I played at the Elk Lodge on the weekends with my band. We're playing country and western. It was like, wow. Now I'm seeing what politics was all about. You can get anything you really want from a financial institution. If you don't lose your dream, but they'll give it to you, you just have to find that door to open up to say, listen, just let me in the door. I can get it on my own. But they need to see a track record. What did you do and how did you do this? For me, it was from being at Motown. But I was just lucky that the door opened up for me. What about people like yourself who said, I got a film company. I want to do this and do that. I need some equipment and I need this and I need to have a place to store my equipment. And they look at you and no, 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 no. And it's very sad. So we tried to do the best that we can and tell our story of what's going on. But until you get something <laughs> that just kind of pops, they won't give you the time of day. You know, they just, uh, they just give you a hard time. But don't ever lose the dream because it's one day the door is going to open up. And when it does, just be ready. Be ready to jump. 
And sometimes you find yourself finding that door to open up because maybe you started working like in a club. Maybe you're a server or whatever and somebody important comes in and they're having a conversation and you're treating yourself well and they look at you and you're a pleasant person. Blah, 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 what do you do? And you start telling them a little bit about the story and it's like, oh, really? Maybe they're with somebody from their group. Take down that number. You got a card? And before you know it, you get a call and it's like, oh boy, scares the shit out of me because you're thinking, am I ready? I know I wanted to do this, but I always have to prepare myself. So when it does happen, jump. We never know when it's going to happen, but always working toward having something. If you'd like to check out more of Mel's work, you can head over to Facebook, where he has a page up that's under Mel Brown B3 Organ Group. And you can see when they have upcoming shows. He still gigs very frequently. And he has some different art up on Spotify as well, which we will try to link to in the show notes. He played for so many different acts over so many years that there can be quite a grab bag there. And we're going to try to accumulate and curate some of that for you in the show notes here. This is a special episode that was funded specifically by the Oregon Community Foundation through their Creative Heights program. I'm so incredibly grateful to them for recognizing our efforts and really witnessing what we're trying to do with this work. As a result of their generous funding, we were able to pay this artist substantially more than a living wage to work on this interview with us. And we're so honored to be recognizing the great work that they've been doing over years and years and years that brought them to this point in their career. So thank you again to them and thank you to OCF for creating more opportunities for artists and culture bearers to share work and share ideas it just means the world to us. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Future Prairie and all of the fun projects we're working on over the next several months, just head over to futureprairie.com. And we also welcome your thoughts and ideas and feedback. Please feel free to reach out anytime online, on social media, at Future Prairie.